But let's read. It's chapter 11 of Revelation, verses 1 to 18. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have the power to, over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of this great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on earth on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a sorry, after yeah, three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but, you, but your wrath came. And the time for the, for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Okay, there's a lot going on. Let's begin, as usual, where you wouldn't expect. Um, <laughs> what drives humanity? What is it that drives humans to be humans? What is it that inside pushes us to exist and to live and to do what we do? There's been a number of people who have tried to answer this question. So you have people like um, Sigmund Freud, the great psychologist, who is under the impression that the thing that drives humanity above all is a desire for sex and pleasure. That's what drives everybody, he says. Then you've got guys like Friedrich Nietzsche, a German philosopher, who says, no, no, it's the lust for power. It's a desire to be the boss. That's what drives humans. But then you have a guy like Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a psychologist who happened to spend time in Auschwitz during the Second World War. And as a psychologist and as a prisoner of war, 
he took a lot of time to observe how people endured suffering. You know, what was it? How did they survive? How did the people who faded quickly, what was, what was the difference? How did people endure? And he came to the decision and to the conclusion that humans are driven by a desire for meaning. They search for meaning. And he has actually a book called The Search for Meaning. And when, one of the things he noticed was this. The, the people who came into the prison camps that didn't have a sense that life had a meaning were the ones who became depressed and gave up quickest and began to see their life as a drudgery and were just saying, just end it, just kill me. And he said, the ones who didn't have a meaning, that happened to them, but the ones that had a meaning lasted longer. But above all, it wasn't just meaning. It was the ones who understood their suffering to have meaning that lasted the longest. And they're the ones who endured the pain of the camps and came out of it, he would say, healthiest. And in the preface to his book, um, there's another psychologist named Gordon W. Allport, who uh, was a teacher at Harvard. And he writes this in the preface. Hunger, humiliation, fear, and deep anger at injustice are rendered tolerable by closely guarded images of beloved persons, by religion, by a grim sense of humor, and even by glimpses of the healing beauties of nature, a tree or a sunset. But these moments of comfort do not establish the will to live unless they help the prisoner make larger sense out of his apparently senseless suffering. To live is to suffer. To survive is to find meaning in the suffering. If there is a purpose in life at all, there must be a purpose in suffering and in dying. If he succeeds in finding meaning in suffering, he will continue to grow in spite of all indignities. As Nietzsche said, he who has a why to live can bear with almost any how. And this is important because Canadians increasingly are under the impression that suffering is alien to life. That your life, your meaning of your life is to be happy, to raise children, to, to build something. And that suffering, when it shows up in our lives, which it does, is an interruption. Like it breaks that meaning. And so as a result, what do we do? We try to escape it immediately, right? The moment there is suffering, we say, how do we get out of it? Rather than what Viktor Frankl would say, and he'd say, no, no, suffering isn't an interruption to your life. It is intentionally woven into our lives for a purpose, to shape you. And so, yes, you want to escape it, but you should also embrace it and say, what is it doing? What is the meaning of it? What's it trying to do? What, what, how can I benefit from this? And that is very counterintuitive. And yet, it seems to make sense. Because people with... Have you ever noticed... Um, to suffer, people will say things like, well, suffering has no meaning. You know, it's, we just suffer because it's random. All the events are random. Well, to suffer in that sort of a way means you never grow out of it because you dismiss that suffering ha could have any sort of beneficial or healing or redemptive purposes. And so um, you never actually grow, and it's actually not true. People that, who say that don't actually believe it. Have you ever noticed, and it's sad and it's tragic, but when people have a loved one who has been abducted or who has gone missing, and they, there's no resolution. It's an unsolved crime. You ever notice how they speak in those press conferences? It's heartbreak, heartbreaking. And they say things like, I just need to see the body. I need to know why this happened. Because we need to understand suffering. Not just that it happens, but why does it happen? And so, um, you know, it's, and it's funny in this way. We don't just want to know that there is a reason for suffering, but we actually want to know that our suffering will come out to some good. When a dear loved one dies, it's not enough for somebody to come in like a pastor or a philosopher and say, well, it's the nature of things, they die. You, you say, yeah, I understand that.
but something good surely must come from their suffering or else they suffer for nothing. All those years of cancer treatments, is that for nothing? Those years of enduring an abusive relationship that eventually led to their death, is that for nothing? They, was there no benefit, nothing good that can come from it? So we don't just want an intellectual answer, we need an emotional answer. See, we want answers that soothe our hearts more than we want ones that satisfy our intellects. And when we look at this passage, though you may not see it at first, we're going to try to look at it through the lens of suffering. And it's going to help us understand a lot about Christian suffering specifically, but at the, the, the final point, we'll touch on all human suffering, not just the Christian suffering. But it shows us that we are called to suffer. It shows us the cost of that suffering and then the crown of suffering, what you get. So it's the call, the cost, and the crown of suffering. So let's jump into this complicated passage. So chapter 11, the first half of it is carrying on with chapter 10, which is this interlude, right? Remember in between the sixth and seventh trumpet, there is this spot where God pulls back and says, John, here's what's going on, uh, and here's what the church is to be in the midst of all this tribulation. And this is continuing on with that until the last trumpet is blown in, in the tail end of the, of the chapter. Now, here's, the, here's what's happened. Chapter 10, John is told, eat the scroll and then go prophesy. Go tell people what, what it says. And then immediately he said, now go and measure the temple and everybody in it. And, but don't measure the outside, right? Don't measure the outer court because that has been given to the nations to trample for 42 months, which is three and a half years. I can't get into all the imagery there. Come on Tuesday mornings if you want a lecture. Um, but the question we need to first ask is, what is this temple? What is this temple that he's being asked to, to measure? Because it's important. Is it, there's one of three options. Is it the actual temple in Jerusalem? No. And here's why we know it's not. It didn't exist when John was writing Revelation. It was already destroyed by the Romans about 25 years earlier at least. So he's not being told to go and measure the physical temple in Jerusalem. People often say, well, isn't it just the heavenly temple? Because throughout Revelation, we've seen that there's this altar in, the, in heaven and there's all sorts of things going on, rituals. Well, no, it's not. And here's how we know as well. Because the nations are given the opportunity to trample it. It'd be weird if the nations of the earth were given an opportunity to go up to heaven and trample a heavenly temple. So that can't be the answer. So instead, we have to be students of the Old Testament. And if you don't know the Old Testament well, Revelation is going to confuse you or to re resolve that confusion, you'll just start making stuff up. You'll start think, believing whatever anybody on the radio tells you. And so when we look at what he is talking about, he's referencing intentionally um, Zechariah 2. He's taking this vision that Zechariah had. And in, in Zechariah 2, he see, this prophet sees a man who is told to measure the temple. And when God explains why, he says, measure the temple, and here's why, because I'm going to build a fence around it. I'm going to protect them the people of God. Measure the temple and all those who are in it, meaning the people of God. I'm going to protect them and I will be in their midst. So I'll be with them and I'm going to save them. I'm going to protect them. And this kind of matches what we see in the New Testament, that the people of God are referred to as the temple of God all through the New Testament. And so um, let's bring up a diagram of the temple. I mean, poor, poor Redeemer. I, I've shown you the temple like five times already and I've only been here a year and a half. But we spend a lot of time here. So Here's a very primitive understanding of what the temple would have looked like. You have the holy place, which is where the ark was and where the, only the priests were allowed. Okay? This would be called the court of priests. And right next to that would have been the court of the men of Israel. So the men were allowed to get a little closer. Sorry, ladies. Okay? 
And then outside of that was the court of Israel, and this was all Israelites were allowed to go. And the outer court was the court of the Gentiles. So what it looks like is going on here is God is saying, John, there's a clear distinction between the people who are inside and the people who are outside. The church, the believers of God, the, the people of God, are, are one people, and I want you to measure them. But don't measure the outside, because I have kind of forsaken this part. I'm going to let them be who they want to be for a time, which means there's going to be conflict between these two for a time. So that seems to be what's going on. And then he immediately says, and I've got these two witnesses. What is he talking about two witnesses now? Here's what he's talking about, because he hasn't left the book of Zechariah yet. Because in Zechariah 4, he has this bizarre vision. And I'll put this one up. Here it is. Zechariah says, I see this vision. And there's two olive trees on each side of, of a lampstand. And we know what the lampstand is, right? All through the book of Revelation, the lampstand has been the churches, the people of God. It's no different in Zechariah. It's the people of God. And the olive trees have branches that are pouring oil into the lamp in Zechariah's vision. And the image is actually pretty straightforward. Zechariah is writing at a time when Israel has come back from Babylon and out of exile. And he has given them, God has given Israel two people who will help lead them, the king and the high priest. The king is, is Zerubbabel. Don't have to say that again. And the priest is a guy named Joshua. And so he says, I have my two, all of my two trees, the king and the high priest, and through them, the Holy Spirit is the oil. Through them, God will pour his spirit into the church and he will be the fuel that lights the lamp of Israel. So through these leaders, these two witnesses, he calls them, through these two witnesses, I will fuel the people. So when he brings up this image again, John, and he sees the same thing, but he has two lampstands, can't get into why there's two, but let's just say there's a difference. Um, and he sees the same image. What we're being told is the people of God are going to function in the world in the midst of this tribulation, this conflict between the world and the church in such a way that they're going to be witnesses like a king and a priest. They're going to be the same sort of witnesses as these kings and priests were for Israel at the time. Now, the lampstand are the people, which I've mentioned. Here's what we also are then told. Immediately after, he says, and these two witnesses who are the trees and who are the people of God will not just be kings and priests in their witness, but they're going to have functions that are a lot like Elijah and Moses. They're going to be able to shut up the sky, right, when the rains, and, and just like Elijah did. And they're going to have the power to bring plagues on the earth like Moses did. And so when you step back, remember I've said before, you have to be careful in Revelation not to get so caught up in the, the tree that you miss the forest because people want to spend their whole life arguing about who the tree is. But when you pull back, you then see, so what has he just shown? That the people of God are going to be in conflict, consistent, right, with everything we've read so far. And when they are, he will have people who will be witnesses for him in the world. And the character sketch, the profile of that witness will be, they will be like kings, priests, something like Elijah, something like Moses. So if you look at that, you begin to see how the witnesses, the people of God, are called to suffer and suffer terribly. Let's begin very quickly with king. What does a king do? Well, a king bears the burden of leadership, which is always difficult. But what a king does as well, it's almost like a parent. If you're in the kitchen and your kids are fighting upstairs, that is a burden that you have to go deal with, right? Because it's happening in your kingdom. And when something goes on in your kingdom, you're responsible for not only addressing it and seeing it as a personal issue to you, but you have to bear the cost of dealing with that problem. And that's what kings are supposed to do. 
Kings see the issues in the world and they address them and they bear the burden of addressing them. So as the witnesses of God, when we see injustice in the world, when we see brokenness, it's our job to say, okay, let's go address it. And even if it costs us our time, our money, and our lives, that's our job. We're called to be this kingly role in the, in the world. And by the way, remember we're called a royal priesthood, so it's not too surprising that the images here are of a priest and the king. What do priests do? Priests mediate on behalf of God and man. And so priests, in a perfect world, a priest's job is to say, look at the, and to, beware, uh, to feel the burden of the world and to bring it before God and to groan on behalf of man to God. That's what a priest does. And then, of course, to bring the judgment and the decisions of God down onto humanity. And so we are kings and priests in the world. Do you see the suffering? Because it means as a priest, you are to feel the suffering of the world as if you're suffering it, which is difficult, and that's a burden. But then we're told this Elijah thing. Think about Elijah. There's so much we could say. But Elijah was, you know, one of the things that marks him is he's lonely, terribly lonely. In fact, um, he's often a case that people use for depression in the Bible because he starts saying things that simply aren't true. You know, uh, Elijah starts to cry out to God at times in, in 1 Kings, and he cries out to God and he says things that you know aren't quite right, but it's the way he feels. Why have you forsaken us? Why is it you've left nobody here, even though there's 7,000 that are still there? He starts to feel depressed. And of course, God tells him, have a nap and eat something. Um, <laughs> and that seems to do the trick. So that, let that be a lesson for you. You may just be hungry and tired. Um, but, but the point is, he's, his message is so bitter to the world that they revile him, that they withdraw from him, and he feels alone. And this is part of what we're called to be as a church. This is why community is so important. You cannot be a Christian that functions in a healthy way outside of community. Because if you do, it's difficult to bear all of this by yourself. It's going to crush you. Because if God want, meant one person to fix the world other than his son, he wouldn't have given you wives, husbands, and a church, and kids. And so, Elijah, we're called to do this as well. Now, can't say everything. Uh, well, let me say this, actually. One of the, if you know a guy named Athanasius, Athanasius was an early church father who cried out against something called the Arian heresy, um, against a heretic, long story. And at one point he's living in a cave because they've driven him out and he's sick of dealing with people. And someone comes to him and says, Athanasius, come on, man. The world is against you. And his response, then Athanasius contramundum. Then I am against the world. <laughs> he just grits his teeth and says, well, the heck with the world. Then I'm against them, I guess. And that loneliness, that defiance, and to some extent, is some of the calling we're called to bear. And I just read something, actually, from a Canadian guy. He's now living in the States. This is off script. And he's talking about the LGBT question and how so many Christians have started to shift their views towards a more liberal approach to this. And his response, he writes an article which is challenging, but I think true. He says, people have begun to fear the world more than they've begun to fear the word of God. And so because they have friends and family who have turned in this direction, they feel like, I don't want to lose and alienate these friendships, so I'll instead alienate and lose my God. That's a dangerous thing to do, but I think he's right in saying we have to realize that we are called to stand against the world at times. And it's hard. It's suffering. It's not pleasant. And we're called to do it. And then Moses. Moses comes to Pharaoh, and we talked about him a few weeks ago, but um, who is on trial in Revelation? Is the world on trial or is God? Well, it's kind of both. God, of course, comes and says, you are my witnesses to the world. Your job is to point out their guilt 
and to announce judgment in hopes that they might repent, but also extend to them grace. But at the same time, the world says, no, no, God's on the dock. He's the one. If there's suffering in this world, where is he? If he can fix it, why hasn't he? Does he not love us or does he not have the power? And so God, so here we are as witnesses like Moses having to not just declare judgment, one witness for God to earth, but also the other way to defend God to an extent. Now, God doesn't need our defense, but in this world, we're called to constantly defend. And so you begin to see if we are called to live as prophet, king, uh, not well, as king and priest, but we are prophets as well. Remember, he calls us that. So there's a prophesying element here as well. Prophet, priest, king, Elijah and Moses, then we are called to live and suffer distinctly from the rest of the world. All the world will suffer cancer, death, betrayal, all these things. And we'll talk about that in a minute. We, however, are called to a very distinct sort of suffering, which is not pleasant, but it ought to be part of our evangelism. When we preach to people, we have to tell them, hey, your life may not improve when you become a Christian. In fact, in some ways it will because you'll have peace, but you may have more opposition. You may lose family that you love. And this is just the nature of the call to be a Christian. It's a call to suffering. But what is the cost of suffering? Don't worry, things will get hopeful soon. What is the cost of suffering? So to understand what this suffering costs us, we have to first look at where we suffer and why. So we're going to look at where we suffer, why we suffer, and what we suffer. So where? That's into the text. He tells us that, I love the way, finally, finally, Revelation tells us something is symbolic. He says, they will, their dead bodies of the Christians will be in the, in the cities symbolically called something. Don't you wish you would say that every time it's symbolic? It would make it a lot easier. But he says it here. The word in, in, in Greek is pneumatikos, meaning pneuma, spirit. So in, the, I think, your King James Version, so who still, still reads that, it says spiritually called Sodom. Some will say and it's, uh, the New American Standard says mystically. The NIV, I think, says, um, sim- not symbolically, metaphorically, figuratively, I think it says. The point is, it doesn't matter. The point is, what he is saying is, hey, we are going to suffer in every place that has the spirit of Sodom, of Egypt, and of Jerusalem, the place where Christ is killed. So every city that, and, and I've got it here, but every city that is corrupt, resistant to God, and violent towards him, will be the venue of the persecution of the church, which means everywhere. So cities that bear this same spirit, that's where we're going to suffer. So again, not pleasant at all. Um, Later on, John is going to call Babylon the city of seven hills. Now, Babylon wasn't built on the city of seven hills, but you know what was? Rome. So John is always using symbolism here. So when someone, when I was a kid, I'm not going to make anybody feel old here, but when I was a kid is when we had the war with Iraq, remember? In the 90s? I know. I'm sorry. You remember that? There we go. So when that happened, do you, I don't know if you were in the church or not. I wasn't. I was just listening to Pearl Jam at high school, I think. And, but you may remember there was people saying, the end has come because Babylon was historically and geographically in Iraq. Remember that? Babylon has come. Stop it. John is symbolically referring to Rome as Babylon because Rome has the spirit of Babylon. All major cities have the spirit of Babylon. And that's the point he's getting at. And so we have to realize that. Now, that's where we're going to suffer. Why do we suffer? Verse 10. 
the end of it. The world will trample the church because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on earth. So, remember last time, a few weeks ago, we talked about how those locusts would come out of the, out of the smoke from hell? And their job was to torment people, which meant they were to give them a taste of hell on earth. We are now given the exact same word, that we, to some extent, will torment the world by showing them hell. And this is why Elijah was so lonely. This is why John is, is in exile. Because our message is a torment because we remind the world of their inadequacy, of their failure, of their shame, of their sin. Now, we also, we also present them with grace. But you see, they'll never accept grace until they know there's, they need to. You won't accept chemo until you know you have cancer. Why would you? And so because we lead with their sin, as the Bible does, people will say, no, thank you. Because whenever you hold a mirror up to somebody, they're either going to repent or they're going to smash the mirror. And as a result, he's saying, what John is saying here is, the world is not going to like these witnesses. And so the temptation is going to be to smash the mirror. And so that's why we suffer, because we proclaim the truth. Then, what do we suffer? Verses 10, 7 to 10 summarize it pretty uh, tragically here. So death. Some will, will suffer death. In fact, the word martyr, as you know, is the word witness in Greek, right? The word martyr is a Greek word that means witness. That's all it means. But the church was historically a place where any, uh, and a, and a, a witness is somebody who tells the truth. And so what happened in history was that people who told the truth were killed so often, we now call martyrs people who die for the truth. And you see how it's changed its meaning, and this is what we are. We are martyrs, like it or not. And so we're going to die, but we're also going to suffer shame. We won't be buried for days. So, and that again is symbolic. In the ancient world, there's nothing worse than not burying somebody. If you've ever read Tobit, so I know some people get nervous when I talk about the Apocrypha, you know, that part of the Bible that some Catholic churches still see as scripture and so on. Well, the Apocrypha isn't scripture. However, it is a historical document that tells us what people that time were thinking. And when you read Tobit, the first two chapters, Tobit talks about how during the Assyrian invasion, he, um, he, he hated seeing his fellow Jews lying dead in the streets. So he would secretly, because he wasn't supposed to, he would get their bodies, dig a, a, dig a, a grave, and bury them because he didn't want their, this indignity done to them. And the Assyrians were trying to kill him. They hunted him for it because they didn't want that because part of the indignity is what the Assyrians wanted. I want to shame my enemies. I want them unburied. And so this, when John says their bodies will be left uncovered, he's saying it's going to be incredible shame we're going to suffer as well. Death, shame. And the last one, though there's much more we could say, is humiliation. Verse 10 again, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. See, when you suffer, there will be no telethons, there will be no Me Too movements, there will be no hashtags saying, uh, you know, free the church or whatever. There will be no celebrity outcry. It seems the world's going to kind of be happy that the church gets crushed. And so we're called to, and this is the cost that we're being asked to bear, the witness will suffer. And this needs to be, again, part of our evangelism. Now, it's kind of depressing, isn't it? But this is it. This is all through Scripture. Now, let's get to the good part here, the crown. The crown of suffering. So let me start with a, a story. I had a friend of mine who was in Korea, not knowing any Korean. And he went to a restaurant, and they gave him some sort of chip and dip thing. And he liked it. And he didn't know what the dip was, because he's not Korean. And he said to the waiter, hey, can you get me some more of this salsa? And the person giggled and brought him some more. But the word salsa in Korean means diarrhea. 
Now, he didn't know that, of course. So, isn't it good that he got what he needed rather than what he asked for? <laughs> right? And sorry, that's a bit graphic, but I have to make a point. Sometimes it's better that we get what we need rather than what we think we want. And I bring this up because the question of suffering, every human suffers. Even Christians could say, listen, why would God allow us to suffer? For obeying him, for witnessing to him. Why suffering at all? What's the point? What's the logic here? And so the biblical answer is perfect. It's the only good answer that philosophy or religions of humans will ever give. It's the best one, and that's how you know it's not a human-made thing. However, it's what we need, but not what we necessarily want. And people don't like the answer. Some people like to suffer. This is the hard part about being a pastor, is you see, sometimes you meet people who think they want to get better, but they don't. They enjoy being miserable about their past suffering. They like the attention it gives. Maybe they, they're so angry, they don't want there to be an answer, because then they'd have to give up their anger. And there's so many, so, so many nuances there, and I'm not begrudging them. Pain and suffering is terrible, and it hurts. But the answer the Bible gives is the only right answer, but it's difficult to swallow. And it comes in two forms. The first one comes in an answer that is really no answer. And you see it in the book of Job. Now, book of Job, he laments. If you don't know the story, Job is a guy who has everything. But it's all taken away from him. His kids are killed. His wealth is destroyed. His body is, is emaciated. Everything goes wrong for Job. And God permits it. And Job just spends a bunch of chapters, I think it's uh, 41 chapters, um, yelling, just complaining, him and his friends, complaining about God and about Job. It's just, it's just a nightmare. And at the end, he basically says, God, you've got to respond because I, I didn't get what I deserve. So he's looking for an answer for his suffering. And God comes in and he thunders, it says, and he responds with over 60 consecutive questions, not one answer. He doesn't answer the question of why Job suffers. And Job, at the end, is content with this answer. But what God does do is every question hammers Job about his perspective. It says, where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did this? And here's the best example, I think. I've used it before, so if you've heard it, I'm sorry. It's the best one I could think of. I was dry, uh, flying once from Vancouver to uh, uh, Terrace, British Columbia, over the mountains, straight north. And I'm in this little plane that was far too rickety. And I'm going over, and every once in a while you saw the roads that snaked through the mountains. And as you're doing that, you, I saw a car trying to get behind, uh, past a truck. But he couldn't see around the truck because it's such a winding road. I, of course, am up here, and I'm thinking, just go. There's nobody for, like, at least to Alaska. There's nobody. <laughs> just goes past the truck. But he, of course, the driver couldn't see that. They could just see around the bend. So they couldn't make a decision. And... It's similar to here in, in Ontario. I know in Toronto they've got the, the 680 News has uh, the traffic guy, right? Daryl Dahmer, is that his name? I think so. And he, drives his, he flies his helicopter and he tells people, you know, there's an there's a accident, the QW and Trafalgar Road, or whatever. And imagine you're driving and you're on your way to work and, you're, and right in your path he says, there's an accident, you better take this other route. You could say, shut up, what do you know? Right? Or you could say, well, he's up there. Clearly, he's got a better perspective than I do. And as much as the, this path seems illogical to me, he's saying it's going to save me time, so I might as well do it. See, you'd be a fool to disagree with the guy up there because his perspective is better than yours. And so what Job is being told is, you are so down here, you, of course, of course you can't see how your mother dying of cancer or your spouse leaving you. You can't understand how that would benefit. 
Anybody. You can't see any good coming from it. I get it. I became flesh. I know how limited your perspective is. But he says, but I am up here. Now you must trust me in suffering. And that's difficult. Because suffering, we want an answer. We want to control it. And, but you see, and I've done this before as well, uh, I had a, a woman who once suffered at a, one of my churches with chronic back pain because she was in a car accident when she was a teenager, and into her 60s, I think, she was still always in pain. And she said, Carl, I wish I just had an answer just to why. Why am I suffering? I just, if I just knew the why, I could survive it. And I tried to be pastoral, but I also said, listen, here's the challenge. What if God told you that because you're hunched over, one day, when you're 65, you'll be walking on the street and you're going to see a lottery ticket because of that. And you're going to find it and it's going to make you a billionaire and it's going to be wonderful. I said, if that was the case, if you knew that's why you're suffering now, why would you endure? She said, well, for the ticket, exactly. If you knew why you were suffering and the benefit it was going to cause exactly, then you wouldn't be trusting God in the midst of it. You'd just be saying, I don't care what's going on. I don't care about God even. I just want that million dollars. And so, if you knew why you were suffering, then you wouldn't trust God. Most of us wouldn't. We'd be just trusting for that reward. And so there's times when God says, I'm not going to tell you because I need you to trust me. Because your biggest problem is not your suffering, it's your heart. You're not trusting me in it. And that is an unpopular answer. People don't want to hear that. They want the pastor to say exactly, well, your child died or so for this reason. Listen, I don't know. All I'm told, first and foremost, is you must trust him. That's the first thing unsatisfactory, God is not, doesn't seem very concerned about you not liking that answer. Because that's the first answer. The second one is the cross. Because in the cross, we don't see an answer for why you suffer. We only see what God did about suffering. And what he did is he took the worst suffering, he took the worst sin of humanity at our very lowest, when we didn't just intellectually kill God, as Nietzsche would say in the 19th century. We physically killed God. And at our very worst, he took that sin and made it the very tool by which peace comes to us. And so he transforms suffering into good. And he says, this is the exact thing that I do. He comes, and the cross is God's example. He should have, not should have, he could have come and exacted a debt. He could have said, you owe me, and I'm going to crush you. But instead of exacting a debt, he absorbed it. And by absorbing it, he says, now... As I functioned as prophet, priest, and king, you now go and replicate that. If you trust that I can turn suffering into peace in your salvation, you need to trust that and go into the world and be an agent who sucks up and absorbs the evil in the world and trusts that I will turn it into good some way. Is that an answer? No. Not to you. You're not going to let... Some people will say, well, I still don't have an answer as to why my mother died. Yes, I know. But you have to trust that God will do it. And you say, well, I don't want to trust him. Okay, then you have your answer. Then you can go to atheism, which will tell you there's meaningless. In fact, your mother's death had nothing. There's no meaning to it. She's, it's really just the death of 67 cents of chemicals. There's no, no real loss there. It's just in your head. Or you go to Buddhism that will tell you you're suffering, but it's not real. It's in your mind. You haven't, you haven't reached nirvana yet. You, know? you, haven't, uh, you don't have a light enlightenment because you know really you're not suffering. It's an illusion. Or you go to Islam that will say, no, 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 you're never going to know the will of God. It's not your business. Just shut up and suck it up. Take your pick. Take your pick of any view you want, but none of them will satisfy you. Only the cross says that not only is suffering terrible, but that God didn't just stand outside of it, but he entered into it and transformed it and has a way that it will end forever. 
And this is where we close. The crown that we get in this last part when the last trumpet is blown is, and I can't say everything, but three things. First is vindication. When it says that they will, God will come, sorry everybody with a pre-tribulation rapture, but he comes after we've suffered. And then he, he takes us up. In the, wits, in the midst, he says, and their enemies watch them. See, the Hebrew mind demanded that retribution and restoration and justice included their watching their enemies be proven wrong. Have you ever noticed in some, uh, in the United States, surely, when you have a death penalty, but even here, family is welcome to, to attend the sentencing of a criminal who did something to them or their family? Because being a witness and seeing justice done is part of the restorative process for the victim. And so Israel said, I want to rise, raise my horn up, I want to see my enemies suffer. Now that seems pretty harsh to us. But in going up, it'll be this exhale and saying, so you see, we weren't crazy. And now you know that we weren't crazy. And that is, this vindication is built in to the crown that we get for enduring suffering. The second thing is success. Remember last week I made a big point? Last week? Two weeks? I don't remember. At some point I made a big point about the fact that wonders don't convert people. Preaching does. And here, it's incredible. Before, we were told no one's going to be converted by the, the stuff that's going to hit the world. But now, because there's witnesses preaching, he says this cryptic but very beautiful thing. And it's going to sound weird. He says, in the end, what will happen is 10% of the city will be destroyed, one-tenth. And 7,000 will be killed. And you think, that's pretty tragic, 10%. But what you're not seeing is that these aren't numbers. These aren't statistics. They're symbols. Because in the Old Testament, Amos and Isaiah both speak about how God will return and he will destroy a tenth of the city. And Elijah speaks about how, oh my goodness, you've only saved 7,000. So these numbers are, writ are written into the fabric of the Old Testament. But do you see what God does in it here? They're reversed. It's not 10% that will be saved now. 10% will be lost. 90% will be saved because of the witnesses. Because God is so good that he says, I'm going to make it so that you are shaped and made a better human being by your suffering and by your witness. And I will allow you to be successful. You're going to see your work isn't in vain, that I will bring people to faith because of your witness. And that's success. We need to know that we're not just laboring in vain. And that's built in to the end. And lastly, it's resolution. Suffering comes to an end. The kingdom comes, and I love that part, the ark, the temple and the ark will be opened up and visible. Remember, the temple, the ark was not invisible, but you were not allowed to see it. Nobody ever saw it. You weren't supposed to see it. Even the high priest would have smoke when he went into the Holy of Holies, so he couldn't see the ark because it would kill him. And yet, he says, in the end, though, the ark, that was the presence and power of God amidst his people, will be open and available to all of you so that the suffering will never happen again. It'll be gone. It'll be dealt with. So is it any wonder they fall on their face and worship? See, suffering is not meaningless. It's not a meaningless interruption to our lives. It's the means by which God wins converts and, and, and sanctifies, meaning turns us into people that look more like him. And because we have suffered, we have, can have, because Christ suffered, we can have peace with him. And I'll close with this quote from C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book called The Grief Observed, A Grief Observed, when his wife died. And he says, Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, we are like blocks of stone out of which the sculptor carves the forms of men. The blows of his chisel, which hurt us so much, are what make us perfect. I don't have an answer as to why precisely you're suffering. 
specific things, but I do know enough to say, whatever it is, you're being shaped into something, and that suffering is meant to make you something you would have never been without it. And we can trust God in it. And if you're not a Christian, trust him. You can trust him. And if you don't, I can't help that. You're showing very clearly who you trust. But if you're a Christian, don't rejoice in the suffering necessarily. I'm not talking about have a party. But you rejoice knowing that the suffering isn't in vain. Everything you've endured and will endure is for a purpose. And it's going to glorify our Lord somehow. And we can rest in that. Let's pray.